There's this super cheesy saying, but I love it so much. If you aim for the stars, you're always going to land in the clouds. And I feel like whether it's subconscious or not, I'm always kind of thinking about this and living my life to this tune where, you know, maybe my idea was to get this amazing prestigious scholarship and move to Peru and teach English and then get this crazy job at a nonprofit in D.C. where I can do all of these amazing things. And you know what? That dream was my stars and it didn't quite work out but where it has taken my life path is so amazing and I wouldn't trade it for anything else. This is the Seasonals podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. All right, I'm here with Sarah Kurtz today. How are you today, Sarah? I'm good, Joey. How are you doing? Really good. Yeah. And where in the world are you? I am currently in Perth, Western Australia. All it's a uh, 14 hours time difference from here in Colorado. You're way over there. Yeah, yeah. Other side of the world. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> what are you doing in Australia? What's what's going on over there? How's it going? Yeah, things are um, things are pretty good. I have been working on an apple farm uh, in the southern region of Western Australia, which is something I would literally never expect to happen in my life. So that's been quite an adventure. I've only been there for a month, but thanks to good old Corona, it was um, an opportunity I couldn't pass up because I had nowhere to live and no job. Yeah, my friends and I were actually on a road trip across Australia. We were headed to our final destination of Exmouth, which is a tiny little coastal town in Western Australia in the far north region. And that was like our little our little mecca that we were headed to pretty slowly. Um, we started our trip together in Melbourne, which is in Victoria, kind of on the bottom side of the east coast of the country. And we took Gosh, I think we took two months even just to get to Western Australia. We stopped along the way. We both have um, vans, so we're doing van life. Um, We stopped along the way surfing, uh, all these different surf breaks and hiking, going to see waterfalls and just really enjoying being out in the gorgeous nature that's over here. Um, But by the time we entered the borders to Western Australia, you know, we started to kind of have to change our plans a bit just because the borders were closing across the states in Australia and then across the regions in Western Australia. So it became pretty clear pretty quickly that we weren't going to be able to get to Exmouth and also that we weren't going to be safe living in our vans on the road with everything that was happening with the pandemic. So we were lucky enough to have contacts in the area that we got stranded in with a farm manager family that my friends worked for two years prior when they first moved to Australia. So it was really cool that, you know, all of those things just fell into place so perfectly for us 
because a lot of backpackers who are traveling Australia and in our situation as well really did end up stranded on the side of the road with nowhere to go and no jobs. So we got super, super lucky with that farm opportunity. Yeah, it sounds like your network came through and hooked you up with a, a nice little pivot there. Yeah. Oh, man, we, we were so lucky. The farmers, the, their uh, mom and dad, actually, they managed the farm and they had such a good relationship with my friends. I had never met them before. So they were even kind enough to kind of add me into the family, you know, even though they never met me. But they even had a holiday house um, nearby to where we got stranded. And they let us stay at their holiday house for free so we could do our two weeks isolation before entering the farm. Just because, you know, we had to do our two weeks isolation after traveling for so far and for so long before we could enter um, the work unit there. We all live on the farm. So we live together. We work together. It's about 20 people. So safety was definitely a big concern for everyone. But it all worked out really well. Was there, because you said there's like sort of a moment where you're like, hey, maybe we should hunker down somewhere. Was there an actual like moment? Did you, because you were talking about police uh, checkpoints earlier. Was there an actual moment where all that happened? There was a moment. And to be honest, it didn't have to do with the police. It had to do with people's behavior towards us as backpackers. Um, backpackers is like a pretty loose term that we use in Australia for people who are here on a working holiday visa. You know, we all come here with our backpacks and we stay for however long. It's obvious who the backpackers are. You know, we all have foreign accents. We normally travel with our camper vans, or our four-wheel drive and rooftop tents. Um, so it's pretty easy to put us in a little box. But when all of this stuff started happening, at least in the region we were in, a lot of the locals started having really negative, I don't know, negative attitudes towards us as backpackers. Um, at one point, someone even said to my friend that we shouldn't be here. We should go home, get out of his country. So the attitude shifted really quickly to the point where we felt really uncomfortable, even being in public with our vans, going to the shops, like doing anything um, the attitude definitely shifted where we didn't feel welcome anymore in this country that we've all called home for one and a half years for me and two and a half years for my friends. You know, we, we've lived here for a long time. We've made a network here. And just to feel so unwelcome at that point was a bit scary. So that's when we thought it's really time to go hide in the forest somewhere. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Go down to the farm and hang out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what is, uh, what's sort of like a day in the life of a uh, fruit picker in Australia? Well, we wake up pretty early. I uh, wake up even before the sun. Normally we are out picking the apples by seven o'clock or seven thirty when there's still like this heavy layer of mist and fog throughout the whole orchard. It's actually quite gorgeous in the mornings there. It's fall here, so quite cold in the morning, which really sucks when you're picking apples using your hands. But yeah, so you wake up and there's this gorgeous mist all over the whole orchard, um, which is quite hilly. So you have the rolling hills with the apple trees and the mist and the dams and the sun just rises above it all and melts the mist off and you get to watch it all happen while you're standing on your ladder up in the trees. 
So we wake up early. That's kind of our morning routine. Uh, we all live on this kind of camp that's at the actual apple farm. So it's pretty easy to get to work, you know, roll out of bed, put on your high vis because we have to wear these bright neon sort of vests so all the tractors and stuff can see us when we're in the rows. Yeah, and we just drive off in our little van, go to work, pick some apples. We normally work until about 3.30. So it's a big working day, like 7.30 to 3.30, depending on the weather and that sort of thing. And it's like pretty intense physical labor being in those trees all day. We have ladders that we carry around as we work through our rows. They're probably about two or three meters. They're big ladders. Um, we use those ladders to climb up in the trees and pick all the apples. Then after the day's over, we get back to camp at about four o'clock and pretty much have time to chill out by the campfire, cook some food, chat with our friends, and go to bed early before we start again the next day. What is sort of the, the evolution of getting better at being an apple picker? Because it sounds way <laughs> like I I can imagine people are like, oh, yeah, you just pick apples. But from doing some jobs, I, I'm sure it is a lot more difficult than that, especially at the beginning. Yeah, to be honest, I wish I could tell you the secret, but I have yet to discover it. I am actually the worst apple picker on the farm. <laughs> I am so slow. No matter what I do and how hard I try, I will never pick as many apples as my coworkers. But I've decided that I'm okay with that just because um, it's a pretty unique work group that we have on the farm. Just because I think about 14 or 15 of the pickers, we have 20 all together, are from islands, like kind of in the Pacific. So they're from Vanuatu and from Timor East. And they have been working, picking fruit in Australia and New Zealand, some of them for up to 11 years. So I call them professionals. They are definitely professional fruit pickers. And the fact that they can pick twice as many apples as me is pretty understandable considering they've been doing it for so long. Um, so I think it's just one of those things. There's no secret. You just have to do it for a while until you can actually get faster. And I've only been there for a month, so I haven't really gotten to that point yet. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, it's your first rodeo and they've <laughs> they've been in the trenches for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah, they're definitely expert fruit pickers by now. Well, you've got a good mindset about it, at least. Yeah. Oh, I enjoy my time in the trees listening to my podcast. So I definitely, it was hard in the beginning because I didn't feel like this was something I would have chosen for myself. I was kind of just there due to the situation. And I didn't really like the work. But I just told myself, you know what, I'm really lucky to have a job. I'm really lucky to have the place to be right now. And I just need to find a way to make this experience positive. And I did that through listening to podcasts while I'm in the trees picking apples and kind of like broadening my mind mentally, um, making the time worthwhile for me while I'm out there on the farm and really just enjoying being out in nature. There's no cell phone reception there. And you really kind of just get to tune out and, you know, spend some time reading books and hanging out with your friends and kind of like reconnecting with the world before service and phones and Instagram and internet. It's 
So it's a nice break from reality. Is it the sort of the social structure, at least after hours, is it, is it closer to like bush party or is it more like a maybe laid back commune vibe? Definitely laid back commune. First off, most of the pickers are from Vanuatu. And I found out recently, this is really interesting, that it's actually illegal for Vanuatu citizens to drink alcohol while they're abroad. So drinking is not a culture on the farm pretty much at all. We don't sit back and like drink a beer after work. Um, we do sit around the fire. We talk. We trade stories about our home countries, which is really interesting to hear what the boys have to say about their island in Vanuatu and Timor East and the culture and tradition there is so different from what I've known. So I've loved hearing about that. But yeah, we sit by the fire, we play cards, we have some chats, but normally we're all in bed by like eight o'clock just because we're so exhausted from being in the trees all day. Yeah. And you got to be up before the sun for, for the next day. Exactly. Yeah, so our, our nights are pretty tame, but it's a really cool environment. And the people who manage the farm, they also live on site. And it's really nice being able to go over for family dinners at their house and that sort of thing. And they're very much into sustainable living. So they have their own chickens. They have their own little like kind of mini farm in the back garden that has like vegetables and herbs that we can go pick whenever we want. So yeah, really cool vibes there. And so then I know you're sort of making your way towards Xmouth and you're going to be making some moves here soon. What's what's the plan? What's going on there? Yeah, well, um, I think I'm leaving the farm in the next week and I'm going to make my way back up to Perth. I have some friends who are in the area and I think I'm just going to spend some time for myself hang out with my friends, enjoy the city life, and wait for the border to open to Exmouth. Because currently, the regional borders in Western Australia are still shut in some points. Um, and one of the points is on my way to Exmouth. So it should be open in the next month. So I'm just going to enjoy my time in the city, see my friends, and hopefully head up to Exmouth within the next month. Um, but I'm definitely keeping that pretty flexible, thinking of some backup plans and that sort of thing, just in case. Very cool. You've spent a year and a half in Australia. Have you have you spent much time in Perth? No, actually. Uh, this is my first time coming back to Perth since I was here, gosh, I think it was three years ago, because um, I came to Australia on a tourist visa, I think, I'm going to say it was in 2017. Um, my little sister was actually studying abroad in Melbourne, and my best friend, who I met while working in Russia, she was from Perth originally. So we all three of us knew each other. We had all three traveled together, me, my friend, and my sister, and we thought it would be a great idea if we all met up for Christmas. So my friend Emma from Perth invited my sister and I to spend Christmas at her family's house and have this big Australian family Christmas. Turns out my mom and dad were quite jealous that first off, I was going to get to see my sister. And second, we were going to have a nice sunny Australian Christmas. So a couple weeks later, my mom and dad joined in on the whole plan as well. And we had a whole family adventure over to Australia. And we started off in Perth. My sister flew over from Melbourne, met us here. 
And my friend Emma, um, we were lucky enough that her dad had this wonderful four-wheel drive car fully kitted out for off-road camping adventures. So we went on quite a few trips down south and up north of Perth with the whole family. And it was just such a cool time. So it's really cool coming back to Perth and kind of like seeing this whole Australian experience full circle. Yeah, that's awesome. Mom and dad joined in. Yeah, it was so cool. What is in Exmouth that you're heading towards? Well, Exmouth is a really, really small coastal community. There's a lot of kiteboarding there and a lot of surfing, which are my two ultimate favorite water sports. So um, I spent the last eight months living and working in an area with no surfing and no kiteboarding. And I went through some pretty extreme withdrawals from that. And I thought, okay, my next destination has to be all about the surfing and kiteboarding so I can get that fix again. And my friends just happened to be moving to Exmouth. So I thought this is a good opportunity. We both have vans. We're both going to drive there together. And that became my destination. But the really cool thing about Exmouth is that it's also a really big boating community. And I recently got into boating. I never expected it to happen when I moved to Australia. I never considered getting into yachting or boating or sailing, anything like that. Um, I came here to teach kiteboarding. So that was my thing. But I kind of fell into this whole boating idea and I loved it. I did it for eight months when I was living in Airlie Beach in Queensland. And when I found out there was a town in Australia that was centered around surfing, kiteboarding, and boating, I thought, I'm done. I need to be there. Um, and that is what Exmouth is. Uh, there's a Ningaloo, the, uh, sorry, the Ningaloo Reef is there. It's kind of like the Great Barrier Reef of the West Coast. A lot of people say it's even more gorgeous than the Great Barrier Reef with more coral, more fish. And my favorite thing that it has are the whale sharks. So my idea was to move up there and get a job crewing on a whale shark tour boat. I'm not sure if that's going to be possible anymore just with the current state of things. Um, but I'm definitely keen to get up there and get my feet on the ground and see what opportunities are around. As I understand it, you're, you're in Australia. You're finding all these awesome things and enjoying the culture. And then you hear about sort of this like El Dorado for all the things <laughs> that you love doing. And then yeah. you start on this adventure and the world just gets tossed upside down and you're going through checkpoints and dealing with all, all these, this adversity and trials and tribulations. And now you're getting ever closer. You're crawling all your way, all the way to this El Dorado. Yeah, it's so true. And I think it's like... Oh, I think it can go one of two ways. Like, you know, when your expectations of one place just become so substantial, you're just like, oh, this has been my dream and my Mecca for so long that sometimes you build it up in your head a little too much. So I need to start managing those expectations. But I think after all of this time on my way to Exmouth, I think when I finally get there, it's going to be even more magical. It sounds like, because it, it definitely can go either way. And I've heard tons of stories from people about different places that it has gone either way. But it sounds like for you, you have your expectations in the right area. Instead of sort of this like, mystical thing, you're like, this is what I'm going to love about it. This is why I'm going there. And those things yeah. do exist. Some people go to, say, Paris 
and they see the Eiffel Tower and it's like a little smaller than they thought. And the city is like not as, you know, not as clean or pretty as they thought. And the people aren't as, you know, it's not as magical. It's not the Disney experience they thought they were going to get. And it just kind of like almost crushes them for the idea of travel just doesn't luster or, or glimmer as much as it used to. Yeah. And this happens. Like I've even been in this situation when I first moved to Russia, actually. And I didn't even have many expectations before moving there. I never even considered this as an option, but you know, it happened. Um, and I moved to Russia. I bought a one-way plane ticket there with a job I had found on the internet. I was straight out of university. I had no money to my name. I knew I wanted to teach English abroad. So I started applying for all these different jobs teaching abroad. And I got a few offers, one in Morocco, one in somewhere in Central America, I want to say Honduras, and then another in Moscow, in Russia. And as a broke, um, graduated college student with no job, I clearly chose the one that offered the most money, um, which was in Moscow. And they were going to pay for my visa and my airfare. So I thought, right, done. I'm moving to Russia. I pretty much had zero expectations because I hadn't even considered Russia as a place I would ever go in my entire life. And between the time I got the job and was on the airplane, I think I had about two weeks to process it mentally. But yeah, I bought the one-way plane ticket and I was headed there and I was like, right, this is my massive adventure. Like my first time living abroad, my first time moving out of the country. I told all my friends and family, I'm leaving, I'm going to Russia, starting this big new chapter. And I got there and I found out that my job wasn't the job I thought it was going to be. I lived in such a terrible part of the city. Um, I didn't have good relationships with my coworkers, and I think I spent the first month of my time in Moscow in pure misery. Like it was not easy, but it was still amazing to be in this other country. And those experiences I'll never forget, like landing in Moscow and walking through the city for the first time and seeing all the Russian people and hearing Russian all around me, trying to learn Cyrillics like on the airplane over there so I could even read the signs. It was an amazing experience, but it also was a really difficult one. You know, I didn't have any expectations going into it, but when I did get there, um, whatever expectations I didn't have were definitely not met pretty quickly. But I think it's just how you deal with those situations. Like, I quickly found a new job. I found a new part of the city that I really enjoyed living in. And I really turned everything around full circle from when I first got there. But I think if you have these ideas of these places and they're not met, you should just try to see if there's anything you can actively do to change that situation instead of just being there, being miserable and disappointed. Um, just be proactive about it and see what else you can do to kind of get yourself out of that space that you don't want to be in or that you didn't expect. Yeah, that's that's definitely great advice because that, I mean, inevitably that situation is going to come up. It's, you know, something's going to turn out to be a little less than you expected or less than certainly less than you would hope if you don't have expectations for it. Yeah. What were some of the big uh, cultural differences for you when you got there in Russia? You know, I'd say the first cultural difference that I had such a hard time with was just the 
you know, the immediate one that everyone would kind of assume when they picture Russia is just kind of like the stoicness that exists in that city. Like um, coming from a coastal town in North Carolina where everyone's always smiling and saying hi to you, even though you're strangers and you're having random chats in the line at the grocery store to this country that's you know, freezing cold with people that don't look at you when you walk down the street. No one's smiling and everything's gray. You know, it was a bit of a culture shock when I first got there, just kind of like assimilating with this new vibe of the city. But eventually you kind of build up your community there and you even find, you know, new ways to make friends that you weren't expecting and you kind of find your little niche within the Russian culture. So once you get to that point, it's really awesome. But yeah, in the beginning, it was just hard to be in such a massive city with, I, I imagine Russia and Moscow to be like New York City, kind of where everyone has their eyes down, they're walking really fast down the streets and all in their black clothes and it's a bit gray sometimes. And yeah, it's kind of hard to get used to that. But once you get used to it, you just become one of the zombies too. So yeah, that was the hardest part in the beginning is just getting into the whole city vibe. What was sort of the the disposition towards Americans when you were there? Because I think it's easy to think, oh, well, they probably hate us because we've been making them the villains of movies for so long. But I'm sure when you're actually there, it's probably a little better. To be honest, they all loved Americans. I was really shocked by it. But yeah. Every time I met someone and said I was American, they got so excited. Their eyes lit up. They asked me all these questions about politics that I couldn't even answer because I don't personally follow politics. But yeah, I never had any issues uh, being American in Russian. I think it's a bit of a novelty. There's quite a few American expats in Russia, in Moscow especially, but definitely not a lot of female ones, uh, if I can say that. I think it's probably like 70% male expats and 30% female. So I was a bit of a novelty to people. And it, yeah, it was kind of, I liked it. It was cool being an American there, just having so many people find that really interesting. I think also just because I have fair skinned and blonde hair, like I kind of blended in unless I spoke. And I was very obviously not Russian. So that was really cool to just surprise people because I would talk and then I even had people say to me sometimes I would ask for help like at the grocery store I couldn't work the self-service machine and I spoke very limited Russian and I'd be like oh can you help me please and they'd hear my accent and they'd look at me cock their head and be like oh you're not Russian and be like no no I'm American they're like oh wow. So let's let's go back a bit because you said you knew that you wanted to teach English abroad how did you know? While I was going through university, I got really interested in traveling. I studied abroad in Spain, and I absolutely loved the experience. I also traveled to Africa at one point and to a few places in Europe. So I knew I loved traveling, but I didn't like the temporary aspect of traveling. I didn't like being in one city and knowing I only had one week to discover it. I just felt like it wasn't enough to actually satisfy um, my cravings. And when I was studying abroad in Spain, I was even only there for a summer. So it would have been maybe two months at most. But just having a home base somewhere, like living in a house and feeling like 
a more of a connection to that city and that country than just staying in a hostel and like going to museums and different landmarks that you find in like your little travel blogs and stuff. I feel like I formed such a like more significant connection with that experience. So I thought the best way um, to do this after university was to teach English. And I found out that I could even get a teaching certificate from my university on top of the courses I was already taking. So, you know, I'm already paying my tuition. I can add these classes on and basically get the certificate for free while I'm in university. Um, So I got my teaching certificate in university. And at the time, I was really interested in entering into the nonprofit sector Um, That was definitely my passion in university. I even started a nonprofit on the side, but that's a totally different story. But yeah, the nonprofit sector was my goal. And I thought there's this really cool scholarship you can get where you actually teach English abroad. And you it's a massive application process to even get this scholarship. No one from my university had even gotten it before because it's pretty prestigious. It's a scholarship that people from like Ivy's apply for and get. But they had one aspect of it that was teaching English with kind of a nonprofit vibe. So part of your time you're teaching English and then the other part of the time you're actually working on nonprofit projects in the community. And I thought that would be such a good base point to get an actual job in the nonprofit industry because it's so hard to break into that industry, especially if you're not coming from an Ivy League background with a degree in like international relations or that sort of thing, which I definitely had none of those qualifications. So I did this massive application process to apply for this scholarship um, and try to teach English abroad in Peru. And I made it a pretty far through the application process. I think I was one of the top five contenders, but I didn't quite make it through to the end. And then I thought, well, that's okay. I don't need to do this particular English teaching job. Like there's so many opportunities out there. And I decided to just start applying on my own for um, English teaching jobs that I found online. So that's kind of like the journey I got to the idea of teaching English abroad. I knew I wanted to live in another country so I could fully experience that country and not just be there for a couple weeks on holiday. Yeah, so I got my certificate and I started putting applications out there. And that's eventually what led me to Russia. Not only are you an optimist, but it sounds like you've got being able to find that scholarship and then seeing that, you know, it usually goes to Ivy leaguers and you're like, no, I'm still, I'm, I'm going to get it though. I'm interested to hear like, what is your sort of goal setting or morning routine or, you know, sort of that process for you? Like, well, I wouldn't say it's goal setting or routine or anything. It's just like, I don't know, kind of this idea that if you don't ask for something, you're not ever going to have the chance to get it. So why not try? There's this super cheesy saying, but I love it so much. If you aim for the stars, you're always going to land in the clouds. And I feel like whether it's subconscious or not, I'm always kind of thinking about this and living my life to this tune where, you know, maybe my idea was to get this amazing prestigious scholarship and move to Peru and teach English and then get this crazy job at a nonprofit in D.C. where I can do all of these amazing things. And you know what? That 
dream was my stars and it didn't quite work out, but where it has taken my life path is so amazing. And I wouldn't trade it for anything else. Where, where in Africa did you go? Well, my first trip to Africa, I went to Sierra Leone. It's in West Africa. That was, man, I'll never forget that trip. It was so amazing. No tourists pretty much ever go there. At least I went back in 2012. So this was quite a while ago. But yeah, I went actually with an ex-boyfriend of mine. He was African. He's from Sierra Leone. And he had such a crazy story. He actually was abducted and forced into uh, be a child soldier during the Civil War in Sierra Leone um, when he was, I think, about 14. Long story short, he survived and he made it out to Ghana and won the lottery to get a visa to come to America, moved to America with his auntie. And I met him when I was working one summer in D.C. while I was in university. And we fell in love, blah, blah, blah. And he had never returned home to Sierra Leone since everything had happened, since the Civil War, pretty much. So, you know, once things were feeling more stable in his life, he kind of thought it's time after 10 years to go back home and see his mom and his brother and kind of see this country that he hasn't seen since it was in a state of turmoil and bloodshed and war. And he asked me to go with him, which to be honest, I um, told him I wasn't going to go in the beginning because I thought this is such a journey that he needs to go on and it's going to be so significant. And I thought it was something he really needed to do by himself. But we had been dating for quite a while at this point and he said he just needed a support system while he was there. And he also wanted me to see his roots just because being in a multicultural relationship can be you know, really enlightening, but also really challenging. So I think, you know, him wanting me to come to his country was just a way for me to understand him better. Um, So I agreed in the end. And that's kind of the story of how I found myself in Sierra Leone. And it was such a crazy experience just because I was there as part of the community. I wasn't there as a tourist. I was there. We were in the village. We were in the main city of Freetown. But yeah, I got integrated right away. Um, I was friends with Issa's mom. We'd wake up in the morning and, you know, sift rice and pick rocks out of rice and start making breakfast for everyone. And I got all of the my presents when I first got there was all the traditional dresses. So I got to walk around in the traditional African dresses and even just walking down the streets in this community was insane because no one had ever really seen a white person before or someone with blonde hair. So by the time my boyfriend and I would have walked from one part of the street to the other, we'd have a trail of about 20 children following behind us, like trying to touch my hair and talk to me, practicing their English. Yeah, it's a trip I'll never forget. That's for sure. It's definitely really eye-opening too because it was my first time really being and seeing a third world country to that extent, but not in a negative way. Like I was part of the community and everyone was so happy there and they were so welcoming. And I just, I loved the feeling of just being integrated into that community so quickly. But I also was so sad, you know, seeing all these children who couldn't afford to go to school because you have to pay to go to school and 
you know, sometimes you see people living in extreme poverty, like the kids running through the trash piles, trying to find things that they can sell to make money for their families. And they're like four years old. Uh, it just breaks your heart a little bit. I've heard about those things and I've seen pictures. But until you see it in real life, it's kind of so distant from you that it doesn't affect you. But once I was there and I, you know, I experienced it and I met those people, it just changed me forever. And that's what originally sparked my interest in nonprofit work. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. So um, when we got back from our trip, um, my boyfriend and I decided like we needed to do something to like help this community in whatever way that we could. So we actually started our own nonprofit and it was education based. So we wanted to help increase access to education. So yeah, we, man, we did so much, but basically we were just fundraising. We founded the nonprofit through our university pretty much. So we had a lot of support from our university. Um, We started a lot of like clubs and stuff like that to help raise money for the nonprofit. And we kind of built our own little nonprofit community back in our university. Gosh, I think we raised like $10,000 in maybe four months or so, maybe three months. I can't remember. We raised so much money and we had a community on the ground in Sierra Leone through Issa's family who was able to appropriate those funds so so well just because they knew what was happening in the community I feel like a lot of nonprofits that don't really integrate with the community and don't really work well because they can't address the problems that they can't see are when people external come into the community and they prescribe to the community what that community needs and sometimes it's not always the best thing but since we were working directly with all of the community leaders in this area of Freetown, it was so easy to just listen to them and listen to what they need and do anything that we can to help them reach those goals. So yeah, we raised the money. We started helping fund kids on um, school tuitions. And the other thing we really wanted to do was um, spark kind of like an interest in the community taking care of itself. So we didn't really want the nonprofit to be a crutch for these people. Um, We just wanted it to be a baseboard for them to kind of jump off of and maybe be something that they could continue on their own um, without our hand in the game. So we basically encourage older students in our program to help tutor younger students. They even started a little like study hall sort of thing where the older students would tutor the younger students and it was an area where they could go sit and do their work, you know, even print off papers and that sort of thing. Um, And then there was a lot of community focus. So they would actually have these massive community cleanups where all of the students and all of the families would go out to the streets and like clean the rubbish from the streets and just try try to like um, incite pride in their own community and their own abilities to help themselves. So that was our focus, and that was really cool. But at one point, Ebola hit. Uh, Another pandemic, right? But this is a while ago, and it hit in the community that we were working with. So we actually had to shift our focus from education to health and safety for quite a while. And that was actually really stressful. That was a super stressful time just because... We, we had such a connection with this community and we wanted to do everything that we could to help them. But if you think about it, in the end, we're two young 
inexperienced, broke college students uh, trying to get all of this stuff to happen. So we raised more money um, and got to send it over so they could buy medical supplies and that sort of thing. But I wanted to make sure we were doing it in the most ethical way possible. So I was actually contacting um, organizations like the World Health Organization, um, their contacts in Sierra Leone, uh, just seeing like how we could best help the community, what information was out there on the ground, what to not do. Um, as we all know now when these pandemics hit, there's always things that you should not do that some people think you should. And I wanted to make sure that none of our, none of our funds were kind of going to something that would actually be detrimental instead of helpful. So, you know, as a 22-year-old college student, um, handling so much money and corresponding with the World Health Organization for the safety of these people in Africa, that was a stress level I don't think I've ever came to again. Um, that was really crazy. I definitely think that, you know, we were doing our best um, with the resources and the knowledge that we had, but I definitely think at some point, to be honest, we got lit, a little in over our heads, but, you know, we had the best intentions and we were helping the community the best way that we could. So I feel really, yeah, really proud of all of that, actually. Yeah, and that's a great, great place to be. It sounds like, you know, you pivoted when you should have and you, you know, did your homework and did it in the best way possible. So it sounds like you, you did everything right. Yeah, yeah, we tried. Tell me a little bit about where you're from, and I know Pennsylvania originally, but then later uh, the Outer Banks. Tell me a little bit about that and then how that sort of ties into what you're doing now. Growing up in Pennsylvania was amazing, um, just being in the mountains. I grew up in State College um, in Happy Valley, and I had a really great childhood where you just, you know, we would go camping and go hiking. And there was just such an emphasis on like nature and outdoors. It was um, a really good upbringing. But my parents are beach people. Uh, so they were living in Pennsylvania for their jobs. Um, but once my dad kind of retired, he moved the whole family down to the beach in North Carolina. And to be honest, I feel like as much as I love the mountains and the outdoors, I have been a beach girl at heart since I was a child, even when I was really little. Some of my favorite memories um, is actually with my dad. So I was probably, gosh, I don't know, maybe youngest four. My dad would actually come into my room really early in the morning on Saturday, like, and maybe he had barely even past midnight, and he'd wake me up, and he'd be like, Sarah, Sarah, do you want to go to the beach? Um, and so we'd roll out of bed and into the car, and my dad and I would actually drive down to New Jersey, which was the closest beach to us in Pennsylvania, and my dad would go windsurfing all day, and I would hang out on the beach. I even had a little baby windsurfer that I would take out in the water, and that just became such a habit for me and my dad and a passion for both of us. I remember I would even have a little bag packed by my bed every Friday night just in case dad came and woke me up and asked if I wanted to go on an adventure. And yeah, those were some really great memories. Just the two of us headed down the coast and you know, it was all really casual. I think one night we even slept in our minivan 
we stayed at dodgy motel rooms in the town because it wasn't about that. It was all about the water. It was all about windsurfing and being out on the water and enjoying, yeah, enjoying the wind and the sun and the ocean. So it was really magical, all of those trips we used to take. And it wasn't just to New Jersey. We even took um, a camping trip down to the Outer Banks when I was seven or eight. It was... Um, my first time down there since I was a baby. We went down there when I was a baby as well. But my dad and I went down there when I was seven or eight and went on this big camping trip so he could go kiteboarding. And I remember one night, it was so windy. I think it was like 40 miles an hour wind that the tent literally was flattened down on the top of our faces because it couldn't stand up <laughs> against the wind. And I just thought, this is so cool. Like, this is, we're camping in a tent on the edge of the ocean, and the wind is just blowing us over. Like, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And it was even on that trip that my dad started looking at houses down in the Outer Banks. And I remember we went to the realtor station. Um, her office was shaped like an igloo. I'll never forget it. It was so random. And we went in there. We had a meeting with this lady named Carol. And my dad looked at me and he said, don't tell your mom. <laughs> uh, and eventually the whole family moved down there. That sounds just like such a, a perfect sort of instilling this great feeling about the beach and about the water because you you've got the go bag you know and then you're going on the adventure yeah. with dad and you're going down there and like all these crazy memories that obviously have stuck with you for so long yeah it definitely was it was really exciting and a lot of special bonding time with my dad and it's what stemmed my love for water sports which is kind of like you know helped me steer my path into the seasonal lifestyle a little bit more easily just because I have this like passion already but yeah it was it was really amazing I love those memories with him and so then between Russia your your first sort of jaunt outside of the country and now Australia you returned for a couple seasons down to the Outer Banks right yeah um I did seasons down there pretty much all throughout university um, even a bit before, because I was the unconventional person who actually took time off between high school and college. Um, there was a lot of factors that played into that decision, but I was basically not in a space where college would help me be productive in my life. I wasn't ready to be in college. I wasn't ready to be learning. And I didn't know what I wanted to do even. So I ended up taking, I think it was like two years off. I spent some time in Pennsylvania. I spent some time in California. And then I went down to North Carolina eventually uh, and lived in a town called Asheville uh, in the mountains. It was so gorgeous on the foothills of the Appalachian Trail. Um, I spent a year there. And in that year that I was in Asheville, that's when I was really like, right, I have this feeling that it's time to go back to school. I'm ready for some structure in my life. I've saved up some money. I know what my interests are. And yeah, that was kind of when I just had this feeling that it was time to start applying for college um, and follow that path. So yeah, that's kind of what led me there. Um, after Asheville, I applied for college at East Carolina University, and I got accepted. So I started going to school there, and it's only about two and a half hours drive from the beach, um, which is one of the main reasons why I chose it, and also it's super cheap. So no student debt here. Awesome. 
And it was really easy to just go home every summer and work a season. I was working as a bartender some seasons, pretty much all in hospitality. But yeah, it was more just because I didn't want to be in my college town. I wanted to be at the beach and I had a nice family home to live at. So whatever jobs I could find over the summer, I easily took. Although bartending was definitely my favorite one where I also made the most money. So I really like to do that. And then I eventually fell into kiteboarding seasonal work in the Outer Banks. But coincidentally, that was after I had already um, finished my two years in Russia. Um, So while I was in Russia, you know, it's cold there. And sometimes the people aren't so friendly. And whenever I'm in these situations where I'm just like, right, I need to do something where I can make this place more enjoyable for myself. I thought back to my kiteboarding passion. And in Russia, you can actually do a lot of snow kiting. And I thought this is going to be amazing. I've never done snow kiting before. And I really want to try it. Um, So I just went online and I actually found advertisement for a kite dacha. A dacha is like a holiday house um, kind of in the countryside. And it was run by this girl. And I love seeing girls like starting their own companies and leading sporting um, ventures. So I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is so for me. And it was super cheap. One weekend, I thought, I'm going to go up to this dacha and I'm going to learn how to snow kite. And I fell in love with it. I actually made a lot of friends that weekend who were Russian and really into snow kiting. And that became my little, you know, my little niche in the Russian culture is like through snow kiting and snowboarding. And I remember one day, it was February, I was skate ice skating with my coworkers. And I thought, you know what? I want to be a kiteboarding instructor which is crazy because even with water kiting, as much as I love it and as much as I did it when I was younger, I was really bad. I couldn't even turn on my kiteboard, which is like one of the crucial skills that you learn when you're learning how to kiteboard. So it was it was funny. I just was ice skating one day in the middle of Russia with my friends. I was like, yep, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a kiteboarding instructor. Even though I'm still taking lessons myself, it doesn't matter. I'm going to I'm going to do this. So I started making steps to um, like improving my skills as a kiteboarder, first of all, which took me on two trips, one to Dakla in Western Sahara in Africa, and another trip to Zanzibar, another place in Africa. I'm obsessed with Africa. Um, And the kiteboarding there is really cool. So I went on these two trips. They were coaching trips, all based on like female coaches and female kiteboarders and improving your skills. So I went on these two trips and I had a great time and I really enjoyed talking to all of the coaches there. And, you know, to be honest, not all of them encouraged me in my venture to be a kiteboarding instructor just because I was not good at it yet. (laughs) They're like, are you sure you really want to do this? And I was like, yeah, I'm doing it. It's happening. Um, So I did these, these two trips and I just started like trying to improve my skills as much as possible. And I decided I was moving back to the beach. And I wanted to just go kiteboarding every day because I knew I needed to get better. And I thought the best way to kind of get into the sport as a profession would be to work at a kite shop. So I applied for some jobs um, at different kiteboarding shops. There's only three, really, um, on the beach. And my dad had actually worked for one of them already and was like, you're not allowed to work for them because he didn't have a good experience with them. So there was pretty much one option for me. I applied for a job in their rental shop. 
and I had my interview. It was funny because I had my interview with them sitting in my flat in Moscow, Russia, as a girl who's basically from this island in North Carolina. Um, so I had my interview and got the job. I worked one whole season for $9 an hour um, at the rental shop, renting out gear. But one of the perks of this job is the community and the network and the sessions. Um, just because everyone who lives and works there is like a tiny little community. They all want you to improve. And, you know, I remember that season, I had made so many friends who always were encouraging me to go out kiteboarding and practice new tricks. And I improved so much that summer. It was insane. And then I decided to go for my certification that fall. Um, so I moved down to Miami, uh, which is one of the places you can get your kiteboarding certification. And yeah, I got certified in Miami. I worked there for a couple months. and. That's when I went traveling with my parents in Australia. We had our Australian Christmas. But yeah, since then, to be honest, I haven't had another season on the beach. I did one season with them between my travels in Australia and Asia. I did over the winter. I just traveled through Australia and Asia after I got my certification. And then I got a job at the kiteboarding center that had kind of like, you know, incubated me, I guess you could say. The deal was like if I worked for them one season in the rental shop and then I got my certification, I could come back in the next season and work as a full-time instructor. So sometimes you have to work your way up from the bottom. Um, and that's what I did with kiteboarding. So I came back the next season. I worked a full six months, which is pretty much like the most you can work in a season for kiteboarding at that location. So I did a six-month season with them. And then as the season was kind of wrapping up, I thought, oh, I need, I need a new plan. Um, and I wanted to keep teaching kiteboarding because they're so new and fresh and exciting for me. I thought, well, the only places you can really go for the winter for kiteboarding would be like South Africa, Australia, Asia, or South America. And I found myself in Australia just because my age and the visa requirements, you can only do your working holiday visa until you are 30. And I was 27 when I applied for the visa. So I thought, well, it's now or never. If I want to go to Australia and spend my time there on this really cool visa. Yeah. And that's kind of how the kiteboarding season work on the beach segued into my um, hop over the pond to Australia. Yeah, and now that uh, the Eldorado's got all the kiteboarding you can handle once you get there. <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, even Perth too has a lot of surfing and kiteboarding, but Exmouth is definitely the mecca for sure. I think the most impressive part of that story is. So I've been talking a lot about the idea of golden handcuffs lately, basically, especially I think in the serving industry as a, a bartender, you get used to a certain amount of money and then you sort of get stuck like thinking about that instead of what you're passionate about or what you enjoy doing. And so mm -hmm. instead of being a means to an end, it becomes sort of the end for a lot of, a lot of people. And, but yeah. for you, you decided that kiteboarding was what you needed to do. And so you went into that. It, it, I thought of that when you said nine bucks, because, you know, going from bartending <laughs> to that, it's definitely, it's definitely on the, uh, the pro and con sheet for sure. 
And, but you, that's what you wanted to do and you made that choice. And now, you know, it's taking you so far and giving you, like you said, such a network, so many friends, so, so many, um, sort of benefits outside of the, the economic part of it. Yeah, that's for sure. And like, that's not to say it wasn't hard, like definitely giving up my bartending job and sending that message to my boss being like, no, I don't want to make $500 a day. I'd rather make 80, you know, that was, that was so hard to give that up. But I knew I wasn't getting what I needed out of the bartending job. Um, Living on the Outer Banks, there's so many people you meet that are just really living their dream and their passion. And they're, you know, out there surfing every day, working as hang gliding instructors, working as like lifeguards, working as kiteboarding instructors. And they had such a solid community. And I was only peripheral in this community just because I was working at the bar and it was, you know, it was a fancy upscale bar, not really the bar where I was making like lifelong friendship connections. Like it was a job and I made a lot of money and that was amazing, but I wasn't getting that sense of community and that sense of passion that I was craving so much. So that was kind of like the main drive to let go of those, those handcuffs is like, this is great. I've made a nice little nest egg for myself, but now I need to stop and use this nest egg to like progress into what I need to do next, which was uh, teaching kiteboarding. So I think that mindset and also wanting kind of like that into the secret little community on the Outer Banks, that was definitely the driving factor. And once I got the job at the kite surf school, like I'm still such good friends with everyone I met there. And I haven't been there for, I think 2017 would have been my last season with them. So I've now missed two seasons with them, but I still feel like I haven't missed a beat. Like these are my friends for life. We even, this is actually really sad, another Corona thing, but we even had a sailing trip planned um, in September. One of our friends is Greek and he's been doing seasons on the beach for ages now. And he just bought a sailboat back in Greece. So me and all my friends who used to live at this apartment together had this massive sailing trip planned in Greece. We're going to have this really big reunion and just spend a month sailing through the Greek islands and kiteboarding and just living life. And that is still going to happen, just not right now. But yeah, just the connections that I was able to forge through kind of giving up that bartending job and that financial security really made it worth it in the end. Yeah, these these wonderful trips are not canceled. They're just postponed because of COVID. They're exactly. still out there. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I got my working visa in New Zealand. And it, for me, it was it was only a year. You say you've been in... Australia for a year and a half now. So tell me, tell me about sort of the process of getting your working visa and then all of that that's gone on. Sort of tell me the Australia story. Yeah, sure. The visa process here for a working holiday is pretty easy. And the coolest thing about it is as of last year, you can now get up to three years of working holiday visa which is amazing. And I never thought in my entire life I would even come to Australia, let alone stay for three years consecutively. Now, I need to reiterate, I have not left this country since I arrived, which is crazy because normally I'm in a few countries every year. Um, So the fact that I've only even taken one 
light all of last year and none this year. Like, wow, it's even crazy to think about. But anyways, um, yeah, so you can get up to three years of a working holiday visa provided you're 30 or under. I think that's the limit. I kind of loved my first year here. And as I was halfway through it, you basically have to start thinking about whether or not you want to do what's called your farm work. Um, if you're uh, from the States, you're quite lucky because you're eligible to do regional work instead of farm work. Um, only a few countries kind of have that agreement with Australia. And the States is one of them. So we can actually go work in territories in the far north of Australia in a variety of different industries. Of course, agriculture is one of them, but also tourism and hospitality. I thought pretty clearly I did not want to work on a farm. So I wanted to pursue this tourism and hospitality opportunity. And basically what you have to do is you have to work for three months in this region, in this um, industry, uh, and get what's called your days. So uh, this is all backpacker jargon, but you know you need 88 days of work. That's your three months. And you have to do it within your first year of being in the country. Otherwise, it, you can't. The application is no longer valid because you've overstayed your welcome from your first year. Basically, I finished my time in Melbourne. I did a season there teaching kiteboarding. Uh, the season was six months long. And when the season ended... I basically knew rough plans is that I had to be in Queensland because I wanted to stay on the East Coast and I had to be north or in a town called Airlie Beach in Queensland, um, which is kind of like the gateway to the Great Barrier Reef. So I thought I'm just going to make my way up there and find a job, work for three months in hospitality, and then apply for my second year visa. Um, and it turns out a couple of my friends also were thinking about going on a trip up that way as well. So I ended up buying a van I bought it empty and I built it up all by myself. Well, okay, with the help of some friends because I'm not the best builder, but it was definitely a big effort. So we built up the van and then we had four of us all together in two vans and we drove up the east coast of Australia. It was an amazing trip. We spent two months on the road um, between Melbourne and eventually arrived in Airlie Beach two months later after seeing all of the national parks and surfing and kiteboarding along the way. Um, such a great trip. I'll never forget it. Uh, and then I landed in Early Beach with my little camper van. My friends, um, they eventually had to leave me because they actually were going back to Melbourne and to Germany where they were from and had other paths that they were following. And I knew I needed to get to Early Beach to do my three months regional work. And on my way to Airlie Beach, I kind of got into this whole idea of the boating industry because Airlie Beach has a massive boating industry, especially related to tourism, just because there's so many little islands around this whole town where you can go snorkeling, see the Great Barrier Reef and all the marine life. So I just thought that would be a really cool way to kind of get my regional work completed while doing something amazing. So that was the goal when I got there. I was like, right, I'm going to get a job on a boat sailing around the islands and swimming with sea turtles every day. Well, it turns out that 
was not as easy as I thought it was going to be, which is crazy. Even people listening to this podcast who have been to Early Beach before know how many jobs there are on the boats and how fluid it is because people are always coming and going. But I just could not break into the the boat tour world that easily. Um, so what you do when you want a job on the boats in this town is you do something called walking the docks. I don't know if you guys have that in Ketchikan. Uh, but it's definitely a thing in Early yep. Beach that you do to find a job. And to be honest, um, as a then 28-year-old person who has a degree, I was like, oh, this is something that I've never done before. And I'm kind of scared, like, walking up and down these docks, talking to strangers on boats, holding pieces of paper that are in my resumes, trying to sell myself to someone, basically. But I got up the nerves to do it and I went down to the docks and I talked to all of the different boat companies and every single one said they're fully crewed. They're not running tours because it was the quiet season when I arrived in Early Beach, lucky for me, uh, but not really. That was sarcastic. Um, but yeah, it was the quiet season then and none of the boats were hiring. I was not finding a job. I had walked to the docks for over a week. Yeah, I was not getting anywhere. And then one day I ran into these two guys who were stepping off a white boat, which is kind of like the fancy yachts. Um, they're not super yachts or anything, but they're definitely fancy, fancy little motor boats. They were walking off a white boat. I had a chat with them, handed them my resume. I literally had no idea what they even did. Um, they had shirts on with logo stars, like they're working, they do something. I don't know what they do, but I'm going to ask them for a job. And the next day I started working for them. And my job was a boat detailer, which is actually a boat cleaner, um, if you haven't heard of it before. So yeah, I spent my regional work um, actually cleaning boats in the Whit Sundays. And it was it was so, I was so lucky to find this job and find these two guys and have them take the chance of hiring me. And yeah, it was really cool. And I even remember, this is the craziest part. Um, I didn't want to be a boat cleaner, right? All of the boats I worked on were just sleeping in the marina. I wasn't going out to see the islands. I wasn't swimming with sea turtles. I wasn't exploring the Great Barrier Reef. I was literally sitting in the marina cleaning toilets and vacuuming out bilges, which for those of you who don't know, bilges are the gross, disgusting parts at the bottom of a boat that fill up with water. So I was like shop vacuuming water out from bilges and bleaching them and cleaning engine rooms. But on my second day of work, uh, I was cleaning my boss's boat for free. Uh, that's kind of what you have to do in this area is you do trial work. So my boss was like, right, clean my boat for free. If you do a good job, you have the job. So I was there cleaning my boss's boat. And he comes up to the boat and he's like, oh, Sarah, how do you like to go on a trip? And I thought, oh, I get to be on a boat that's not sleeping in the marina? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. He's like, okay, well, I have this boat and we need to take it down to the Gold Coast. And we're leaving today. And I thought, oh, gosh, okay, we're, this is happening. I was like, all right, cool, let's do this. And I pretty much had no idea, like, what the trip was going to be like or what I even needed to do. But I just knew I wanted to be out there on the water and learning new things. So I kind of took a risk. It's a bit scary going on a boat trip that's four days long offshore with someone you literally just met and know nothing about. Uh, so I remember leaving the marina. I texted my parents. I was like, this is the name of the boat. This is the registration. We're going from this port to this port. 
and I want a service, um, you know, so I send them this little message being like, if anything happens, look for this person, like, and we got on this boat and got into the open water, and honestly, it was such an unforgettable trip. The boat we were on was a 47-foot Amalfi, which is an Italian-designed yacht, and it's pretty big for, you know, for the boats that we were working on at least and it had a couple bedrooms underneath a nice beautiful kitchen I mean these boats are new and they are super fancy things I never imagined I would even look at let alone be sitting on for days at a time so my boss and I took this boat down to the Gold Coast which was a four-day trip um, to deliver it to its new home there and I learned so much on this trip I learned how to do the navigation on the boat. I learned how to keep night watch. I learned how to basically just drive the boat and look after it. And yeah, it was crazy. And then I got back to early and continued to wash toilets and clean bilges for four months. But eventually I did make it into my dream job of going on the overnight charters. Um, I got a job on a sailing catamaran, 18 meter sailing catamaran that took people out to the islands. It was a sleep aboard boat. So we would go out for three days and two nights and we would have up to 30, 31 passengers on the boat and three crew member. Um, we'd go snorkeling. We'd go to Whitehaven Beach, which is the most beautiful beach in the whole world. And it was just an amazing experience, like, you know, getting to be able to snorkel with sea turtles and I saw my first reef shark, a white tip reef shark. I swam with a manta ray one morning. Um, it was just one of those jobs you have where sometimes you have to pinch yourself and be like, is this really happening? Like, am I actually getting paid to be here in paradise right now? But yeah, it was happening and it's totally possible. You might need to scrub a few toilets to get there, but you know, it'll happen. So yeah, I spent four months working on that boat. Well, it's easy to say that I passed my three months um, requirement to get my second year visa while living up in Early Beach. Um, and then I decided it was time to hit the road again. And that's when I kind of continued my journey over to Exmouth via Melbourne. So I literally drove from the far north area of the east coast of Australia all the way down around the bottom. And now I'm headed back up. To the north part of Western Australia. So I'm going nearly around the whole country at this point. It sounds like for, you know, as much as you, you know, it sounds amazing. And you're like, you know, some days you need to pinch yourself. It sounds like you definitely, I mean, did all the things that you needed to do to get there. And it definitely, like you deserved it basically is I think what I'm trying to say, because, you know, you did the hard work, but also one of the sort of underappreciated things is like there are so many points along the way that you chose that you chose you know a, a side of a decision that would lead you to something like that instead of you know not going on that trip uh with your with your captain and you know instead of doing all these sort of risky sounds like it has like inherent danger in it, but <laughs> I mean it in sort of a way like the risk reward is really high. You know, you don't, you don't know what's on the other side of it. You kind of know what's on the other side of like the other thing you could have chosen, but you always chose sort of something where 
you know, the bar was really high and you, like you said earlier, you shot for the stars and you, you sounds like you ended up in the clouds, like every step of the way. Yeah. Well, that's how I try it. And yeah, with the risk thing, like I've definitely, definitely taken some risks along the way, but for me, like that's all part of the, the adventure and the joy I get from it. Like getting on that plane to Moscow, my one way plane ticket for this random job I found on the internet like the feeling I get from that isn't quite fear. It's kind of like the feeling when you're on a roller coaster and it's like slowly chugging its way up to the top. Like it's going to be an amazing ride, but there's also that sense of like adrenaline that goes along with it. And I feel like some of these like experiences I've had along the way kind of have had that same sort of factor to it, like going on this boat trip with my boss and you know, a few other things. It, you just have this like roller coaster fear where you're like, fuck, this is really happening. Like, you know, we're strapped in. There's no turning back now. Like, we're going and we we'll see what happens. Like, it's going to be a crazy ride. Yeah. And it, it definitely has been a crazy ride, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it, doesn't it, huh? It's been so much fun, though. I wouldn't trade it for anything. So tell me sort of your thoughts on the seasonal lifestyle in general and maybe some of the advice that you give people, you know, whenever they ask you about what you do and how they can get into it and start doing things like that as well. I think for me personally, like my biggest advice would just be to like, you know, don't hold back. Don't think that you're not good enough. Don't think that you can't do it. You don't have the skills or the experience because little secret no one does before they start seasonal work we are all newbies at some point and we all make it through to the other side you just need to catch your break um and the only way to do that is put yourself out there um i remember one time i tried to get a job teaching kiteboarding in asia and i sent out over a hundred emails looking for a job and i didn't get a single job and that was okay you know i ended up teaching kiteboarding in North Carolina and Australia, like that just wasn't the path I was meant to follow. So you really have to not let failure get you down because it's not failure. It's just an opportunity for something else to happen instead. So yeah, I think that would be my biggest advice. Like don't be afraid of what you're capable of because you're capable of more than you could ever imagine. Um, And really just put yourself out there because you know what? You're not going to get anything unless you ask for it. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And the part the part I love is you you remind you reminded me of a lot of my friends, some of the some of the goofier ones, like the the idea that, you know, everybody starts out as a rookie. And some of my some of my very close friends are, you know, like monsters in their, you know, chosen industry or you know, their whatever their seasonal seasonal gig that they have like built up sort of their career into and but I remember when they started out and like how how worried they were and how you know they thought they were sort of like the imposter syndrome and you know all these thoughts that were going through their head like oh there's no way I'm gonna make it I'm not good enough and it's like and now I watch them like I'll go out on a tour and just hang out with them while they're doing their job and it's like they're so good at it and they're so educated they're so talented and you see them like jump into that mode almost and then you know all these people are hanging on every word that are paying for these tours 
And you kind of can't help but think back to like that shaking, jittery new person. It's like, yeah, every, you know, everybody has to start somewhere. If you want something, it doesn't matter. Go for it. It's so true. And I had this moment when I first started teaching kiteboarding, like, of course, I doubted myself 100%. And this is terrifying. This is a dangerous sport. Like, things can go really wrong. And it's all in my hands. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. But the other thing is, like, you have to convince yourself that you're capable of it. But even more important, you have to convince your employer, which as a female entering into teaching kiteboarding, that was really hard, especially considering I'm like five foot five and weigh 120. Like most of the kiteboard instructors are these big, strong guys, um, mainly because weight is a massive factor in kiteboarding, which is something that doesn't scare me at all anymore. Like I can take out a 240 pound student who's like starting to ride on the board So I'm basically with equipment meant for someone twice my size and I'm perfectly comfortable with it. But it definitely took so much time to get into that space where I'm like, right, I got this. Like I had so many lessons where I was just like ready to pee my pants. I was so scared. But you just work through those moments and eventually you'll get the experience to have the confidence. And from there, it's just like the sky's the limit because once you've gotten an in at one seasonal job and you have that one first point on your resume, it's so much easier to go through to the next next step. Yeah, just keep facing those fears. Keep making those mm. right choices all along the way. Yeah. For somebody that I mean, because I even have these thoughts. I, I was in New Zealand for a while, but it's still still sort of like a leap for me to think about going there for a long time. For somebody that maybe wants to go to Australia or maybe even New Zealand, now that you've lived there for a while, you kind of know what it takes. Like what what is sort of financially and otherwise, what, do you, what would you suggest having and doing before you jump over there? That's a good question. I would say first off, definitely have your nest egg. Australia is freaking expensive and you might not always get the opportunity you're looking for when you need it. So having that nest egg when I first came here was nice. I also lined up a job before I got here just because I had like pretty nice qualifications in the kiteboarding industry. Um, So I got my job before I even flew over and that was Um, amazing. If you have a certain specific skill that can be transferred um, into like another country, uh, whatever that may be, definitely see if you can line something up before you arrive because landing on the ground and having income straight away is amazing. So I was kind of able to save up money from that job and working for six months to fund the rest of my travels. Um, I never had any stress about finances since I got here. And I think that's just because like I hit the ground running, got here, already had a job and a community just because our jobs are super community based. Like once you have it in with the kiteboarding community, you have friends, you have people to help you find a place to live, like you're fully set up. So if that's a potential for you to achieve, I don't know, um, I would go down that route. I think some people come here with the, you need $5,000 in your bank account to even have your visa application come through. But I think that's the bare minimum you should have in your nest egg when coming here, just because it is really expensive. And if you don't have a job lined up, you're going to need that money to stay at your hostel or your, rent your flat while you walk around looking for employment. 
and you might not find something that pays so well at first, you know. I definitely had some really low-paying jobs in this country as well. So definitely having something kind of set up where you can spend some money without freaking out is what's going to help you make it or break it here. Yeah, and then the only other thing I can highly recommend is buy a van or a four-wheel drive with a rooftop tent, whatever. But buying my van was probably like the best decision I ever made uh, since coming here just because I can move to whatever town or whatever city I want and like my whole house is inside my van. So it just makes the experience like that much more exciting because moving from one town to the next is like uh, adventure in and of itself like driving two months up the coast from Melbourne to Airlie Beach or driving you know now I'm on my trip on the west coast to get up to Exmouth and without a van I wouldn't be able to see like even a tenth of the places I've been to just because I have the access so if you can manage to save up for a van that is the way to do it I think what is a lesson you learned growing up, either in Pennsylvania or the Outer Banks, that you use today, sort of every day, and kind of has helped you? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I'm gonna have to say across both locations, it's just a appreciation for the outdoors and for nature. For me, in particular, like growing up in Pennsylvania, we spent our free time going on hikes and camping in the forest and going to different national parks and finding different waterfalls. Like even when we were in high school, like this is still kind of what we would do. Like we'd get out of high school and we'd go meet at like our favorite hike and walk up to the top of a mountain or even just drive up to our favorite vista and watch the stars or have a campfire. And same for North Carolina. It's you know, in the Outer Banks, it can be pretty small sometimes. Um, And there's not so much to do, depending on what um, part of the Outer Banks you're in. But you really learn how to appreciate nature to such a different level. I remember some of my most memorable nights in the Outer Banks are like, nights where we just all of us went out to the beach and like, swam in the ocean at midnight with the bioluminescence, um, which is when like the water glows blue. Or one night we got this massive raft um, that can fit like eight people on it. And we put it in the sound, which is like this little bay on the other side of the ocean. Um, And we just like looked at the stars one night and floated down the water for, you know, we call it downwinder, but you really just float from one point to another. Yeah. And just like had some chats and spent the evening under the stars. But yeah, I really think that like my upbringing in Pennsylvania and my trips with my dad to the ocean just really taught me to like seek out all of this stuff in nature and appreciate it and be out in nature and get a lot of enjoyment from it. You've got another year and a half left for your working holiday visa. After, mm-hmm. after that, what do you think the future holds for you? If you had to guess. Well, We're going to see what happens. I'm really at a pivotal point right now. So it's one of those times where I'm like choosing a new direction. And just last night, I kind of was having a conversation with my family and I made a decision. I don't know if it's, I'm going to look into it, but I'm thinking about getting my STCW certification here in Australia. So this is the certification that you need 
to work on the super yachts, which is like my dream for the next few years. Like when I leave Australia, I want to be on a super yacht. Whether I'm leaving Australia in the super yacht as a job or I'm flying to a super yacht for a job, like I definitely want this to be my next step um, or at least my next big dream. Maybe it leads me somewhere else instead. And that's totally cool. But yeah, I want to get this certification to work on the super yachts. I was originally planning to get it in South Africa because it is a fifth of the price that it is in Australia. But now that I've decided to stay here for a year and a half, I, you know, through talking to my family last night, I thought, oh, this is actually a really good opportunity. I'm going to be here. I have the money. So yeah, I'm going to get this certification um, in the next year and a half that I'm here. I'm going to move back to Early Beach, hopefully and maybe start getting some experience on the super yachts up there. And then when I leave the country, um, hopefully I'm going to continue on down that track and like really dive headfirst into this whole yachting thing. Yeah, I really like it. Well, you know, I know a lot of people have this dream, but like kind of the big dream in the back of my head that I don't know if it's going to happen or not, or even if I want it to, but the whole um, buying a sailboat and cruising around the world is definitely something I've thought out about for a long time. So, you know, I think yachting will be a good way to save money, get experience, see how I like it, and, you know, maybe get some cruising jobs afterwards, do a few um, crossings, few deliveries, crew, and, yeah, if I'm still feeling like it's the right way to go, we'll see what happens. Yeah, the... I knew a lot of yachties in the Virgin Islands and they, they make a ton of money. And yes. if you're on a good boat with like a good owner, it's just an incredible experience. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Um, and I have heard the, the other stories too, where you don't get on a good boat, but I feel like, uh, you know, I'll be able to take that one as it comes. So yeah, we'll see what happens. It's definitely going to be my next um, I call it my cash cow. Like every now and again, I have like this big money making job where, you know, you can just save up so much money in such a short period of time. And yachting is definitely one of those jobs where that's possible. And then before that, working as an English teacher in Russia was my big cash cow job where I was able to save up enough to get my kiteboard certification, work for $9 an hour at the rental shop for a whole season that sort of thing. So it's been a few years since my last cash cow. So I think that'll be good. Get into yachting and see where it takes me. I'm pretty excited. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was wonderful hearing your story. There's so much going on there. It was great to kind of mm -hmm. dive in there. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. I had a really great time. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.